I'm not going to play a ton from the protests that we have seen in the past few weeks and today. There have been protests today as well by a certain number of anti-vaxxers, but I do want to play just a tiny bit. This was one of the protesters outside the courthouse in downtown Vancouver earlier today. We never voted them. I never voted Bonnie Hendry to dictate my life and these kids' life. So as these answers don't get done and people are closed their businesses, losing their houses, which is me, I'm a business owner, almost lost everything, due to what? There is no freaking pandemic. The pandemic is fear. Done by Global News, CBC, CTV News. The fear is causing people to lose their minds. That's right. It's a fear pandemic. I'm not going to put this on the news. So as this keeps going on, it's going to get bigger and bigger and bigger. So I let that one go a little bit longer because I wanted to include the part where they said they would never put this on the news. But I did put it out there because I don't know how you have a conversation with somebody who truly believes that and how you make it known that it's not a fear pandemic. It is a real pandemic. It is what we are dealing with. And we've been talking at length about the greater good, vaccination for the greater good to get us out of this. Well, my next guest is here to talk about what he has witnessed firsthand in this pandemic. And Tyrone Joseph is on the line with us. Thank you so much for being with us today. Yeah, thank you for having me. Uh, Tyrone, you you tweeted out a lot of information about what has happened in your immediate family when it comes to COVID. Family members both put in the ICU. How are they doing? Well, uh, my nephew, uh, and again, he's 30 years old. He's fairly healthy. He's out of hospital. Um, He received uh, steroid treatment uh, to be able to help him breathe a little bit better and he's gone to recover at home and my sister there's been no change still induced coma and uh, uh, she's not intubated but she's ventilated and the doctors are are hopeful for her progress and recovery and what led up to this as far as what what were your your sister and, and her son again you mentioned her adult son he's 30 what was their take or, or their stance when it comes to vaccination well, um, I, I know they were both unvaccinated, and uh, and actually my sister's husband is also unvaccinated, and the three of them came down with COVID. And um, my sister has never really been vocal about uh, any kind of position uh, or anti-vaccination position. However, my nephew has been. And, uh, I mean, he was in the home with his parents, and uh, um, he... Um, He's he's one who can who subscribes to some of the uh, conspiracies and conspiracy theories out there, and uh, I suspect that's where my sister uh, caught COVID. And uh, I mean, I have a huge family, uh, lots of siblings, and um, I've come to learn that really none of them are vaccinated. Maybe one that had to be. Right, and and the same kind of uh, reasons for for not wanting to be or to be very hesitant about the vaccinations. Well, in our case, I mean, we're Indigenous, and um, historically, we've been distrustful of government and of Western medicine and of the care we expect to receive. Um, and uh, I believe that played a big role. Um, and uh, my, uh, for the most part, I mean, my, my family aren't anti-vaxxers. And when I did, I have been talking to them over these past couple of days, and they all kind of echo the same type of sentiment where they're like, well, we don't really trust things that people say. I mean, sure, public officials and government officials are out there speaking about uh, 
uh, the need to vaccinate, and they just simply don't trust what they say. They wanted to wait and see what the effects were. Um, um, my 28-year-old son, throughout this, he just got his first dose, and he did so um, kind of out of necessity and because of the uh, because he has a four-year-old daughter that he wants to ensure proper care for, and also uh, uh, because of the mandate. So he thought, well, you know what? I waited long enough to uh, see what some of the effects would be, and uh, uh, and uh, you know, so far, no one I know has had ill effects of the vaccine, and. It's kind of mandated anyway, so let's do it. But it's, it, it, I think it all stemmed from distrust. Is there, it's, a, it's such an interesting point of view to look at, and I think it's one that often gets overlooked when we talk about messaging and getting the message out there and making sure people have all of the information they need to make a decision. Is there something, do you think, that's maybe, is it lacking in Indigenous leadership or, or what voices need to be heard to help people or, or to help people maybe who are hesitant? In my experience, what I've seen is that there needs to be a more personal connection. Um, and it's really unfortunate that it took our sister, my sister, to, to, to really have ill effects of, of, of the virus for us to start talking about it. I think there needed to be a lot more family discussion at a personal level and to really consider not just ourselves, but all of our family members immediate and extended and uh you know we um when you hear people out there um offering the same type of messaging about the need for vaccination and if if they're on the tv they're on the news they're on social media and if they're public officials or government officials or health officials then that message did not seem to resonate and Um, You know, when I reached out, I've since received, like, I had a Twitter rant about all this, and uh, um, it it was really well received, and it's just completely blown up. And I've heard from people, close friends of mine, who said that their friends saw me on the news and decided to get vaccinated. So we need a personal type of connection. Someone we know has to plea with them. We have to talk to our family members, our friends, our close loved ones. I just assumed that our... uh, family members would line up to take the vaccine as soon as it was available. And I've since learned that that's just foolish. Well, and I'm glad that the response you're getting is, is a positive one. I wanted to ask you about that because I was reading through the Twitter thread that you put out and, and some of it, I mean, well, all of it, but uh, parts two, I don't know how somebody could read uh, read through it or, or the parts where, where you say, if your loved one can't get an ICU bed at VGH or Mount St. Joseph, I'm sorry, I really am. I'll try. I'll plead with any remaining vaccine hesitant family members. And you talk about suffering and, and the sacrifice of your parents and parents before them and the response now that's that's got to be resonating with people and i hope so because aboriginal people we've we've suffered long enough and i believe that this is a real opportunity for us to build back our communities stronger and to help strengthen our, our future generations and that's really what we're about we have to look to our children we have to look to improvements in life for our grandchildren and their children from there and uh uh you know, my, my, my parents both went to residential school. Of course, they're distrustful of Western medicine. Of course, we have historically uh, suffered and needlessly. And uh, we um, need to rely 
on each other and do this for our communities, do this for ourselves, like for our own people and to ensure that we come out of this stronger. And that's been my plea. Well, Tyrone, thank you for doing this and for coming on the program. And I'm happy to hear that your nephew is out of the ICU. I hope uh, so much that your sister gets better and makes a full recovery from this. But thank you again so much for talking to us today. Certainly. And if I could just thank all the healthcare workers, everyone out there who's providing support and assistance and medical help to everyone out there suffering, regardless of their uh, position or politics. It's very important. And sure, there are protests today, but uh, uh, these healthcare workers and frontline workers have to know that there are millions of us that are behind them and support them. And thank you to them. All right. Tyrone, thank you again so much. Certainly. Take care. Bye. Thanks for being with us. Well, last week, looking forward to today being the day when the vaccination card was going to be required at several businesses, we were talking to some restaurant owners talking about what they were doing to prepare for this. We said we would check back in. And so today we are. We are joined once again by Owen Coomer, who is the operations manager at Tap House in Coquitlam. Thanks so much for coming back on the show. No, no, no worries whatsoever. Always a pleasure. Well, a few hours in, I know some places started, uh, did a bit of a soft launch starting on Friday and throughout the weekend, but how are things going? So far, so good. Um, I mean, we were able to download the app uh, yesterday. It was a little harder than (laughs) than expected, especially uh, we ended up buying uh, uh, Google uh, Androids and it was just not the proper software and things like that. But I mean, we were able to at least get, get it going in advance. And today it's uh, it's been it's been good. Um, I'm just kind of looking forward to what it's going to look like when we get a little bit busier, rather than just you know we can the occasional person come in the door. So right. So I, I would assume that the Monday morning, uh, or even the Monday lunch crowd, probably not the busiest time. Oh, 100 percent. I mean, today is, you know, the first Monday night football and, you know, basically a year. So, yeah, we're expecting a pretty good happy hour and uh, night evening. So it's going to be interesting uh, when we get, you know, the, the loads of people kind of wanting to flock in. Um, what we found, though, is that the, even just downloading the app, it almost is not uh, useful just to kind of make sure that you scan and make sure everything aligns perfectly and stuff like that. We kind of are looking at the photo ID and basically what they're showing with the QR code is exactly what we can scan with our thing. So we're trying to we're trying to figure out the best solution going forward. Uh, sorry, so what do you mean that there's an issue with making sure that you're scanning or getting the information? Well, basically what you scan is exactly what comes up as uh, the person's QR code. So it's basically just, you know, once you scan it, it just comes up as this person's vaccinated. But you're basically scanning the QR code and it comes up with the exact same information that the person is showing us. So unless they're they're fraudulently using somebody else's, you know, QR code or whatever, I mean, there isn't, it almost seems like a waste of uh, uh, time. You know, we can just look at this and, and then get their ID and you're good to go. Okay, I, I see. So when you scan it, does their name doesn't come up on the QR no, code as well? It, it, but it, it comes up the same information as what they have on the, their their phone. Right. Oh, okay. Yeah. I, I get it. So, yeah. I, I mean, I would hope that somebody wouldn't go to that length or that extent to try and, and scam the system. But who knows? Judging by some of the things I've seen out there in the last few days, uh, who knows what people oh, exactly. are doing? It's not, a, it's not a, you know, I mean, it's a work in progress uh, as expected. So. Uh, you mentioned then you had to, to get some more equipment to do this. Do you have any idea what the cost has been to you as far as being ready to have this up and running? Um, well, we bought we ended up buying two tablets at each of our locations. So, I mean, 
you know, roughly just over $500 uh, just to get a couple tablets. And again, we just, we bought two because what happens if one of our tablets, you know, freezes or it runs out of battery or whatever the case may be. The fact is, is that I don't really know until we hit a, a really busy time whether I'm going to need more, you know, more tablets or, or more people or staff and things like that. So, like I said, it's going to be a work in progress. But, I mean, yeah, roughly 500 bucks so far, and uh, I'm sure it's going to end up being more. And I know some restaurants have taken the, the step, gone even further, and have hired front door staff or additional security-type staff. Have you had to do that? Uh, we haven't. We haven't as of yet. I mean, the thing is, is that we do always have hosts uh, on hand anyway. But I mean, again, depending on how busy and how long the lineups are, and they take the time in order to do so. Again, come Friday, Saturday, I mean, I'm probably going to have to reevaluate uh, what we're going to be doing going forward. I know that the global group they were talking about, you know, spending thirty upwards of thirty thousand dollars a month. I mean, I don't think we're going to end up having to go to those lengths whatsoever. But still, I mean, you have to almost put it towards. If I hire more staff, we can at least get people in the door faster because what happens if we don't hire those additional staff, those people are just going to walk or go somewhere else. So I'm going to be losing business. So, I mean, I have to definitely take everything in consideration. Uh, one of the things that we ended up finding out today just from Jeff from uh, Able BC is that we could, as long as we ask the customer and, and they're okay and comfortable with it, we can actually have their um, vaccination records on hand on premise so that regulars don't always every day have to come in and show their proof of vaccine and things like that. So that in itself is a little bit of a helping hit. Yeah. And I've heard, I know there are some gyms that are doing that as well. And as long as I think, as long as people are comfortable with that and know that it, know it's being stored safely and not being shared, people will probably be okay with it. Absolutely. And again, it will help certainly because our business is based on having the regulars and, and people that we know and things like that. And I mean, again, nobody wants to, have to continuously come in and do this and, you know, show ID and, and show their passports. Because like I said, even last week, it's not like we ID every single person that comes in the door. So it's just that extra step is, is something that hopefully we can just, you know, mitigate the, the time, and, you know, to get people in the door. Uh, do you know, has anybody showed up today that was unaware that the vaccine certificate is now needed? Uh, no, but we did have somebody from the States come to our Surrey location. Of course, they don't have that uh, proof of vaccination uh, QR code, but they did have their uh, pass to indicate that they were vaccinated. So that's come to play. But, yeah, we haven't had uh, anybody come in yet that were unaware that this is going on, but uh, I'm sure that's going to come. So when somebody comes from the United States then or from a different country, uh, as long as I guess as long as they show what they would have had to show to get into the country, is that what they show you? Yes, you bet. And, and that would be, I would imagine, a slick process as well. Oh, 100%. I mean, again, it's not, not like I have uh, all the systems in place to show every single staff member, hey, this is what it looks like when somebody's coming from the United States or somebody's coming from China or whatever. I mean, like I said, it's going to be a work in progress for sure. You know, I just, uh, I, I'm hoping that there isn't any problems. I'm hoping it's easy and hoping that uh, eventually most people are going to kind of understand, you know, what the process is and hopefully alleviate some headaches for us. Uh, we've heard, unfortunately, uh, some online chatter about uh, people that are very opposed to this, that, that say they're going to not only not go to restaurants that enforce this, but they might potentially do things to cause them harm, take out orders that are never paid for or never picked up, kind of phony mm -hmm. takeout orders, that kind of thing. What are your thoughts when you hear things like that? I think it's absolutely insane. I mean, bottom line is, is that, I, I, to be perfectly fair, I, I heard uh, through uh, the rumblings that this might take place. So we've tried to take a, a little bit of a precautionary tale to take out orders and things like that to kind of let our staff know that this may be coming. 
Um, we've actually noticed that even on uh, at least Saturday night with our third-party deliveries, people have to prepay, but uh, people were cancelling last minute after food was already up and things like that. And I don't know whether, again, it could be glitches, it could be an honest mistake or whatever, but we've already started to notice that there's been a few you know, occurrences of this. But, uh, yeah, I've heard a lot of people have threat, uh, threatened. I mean, I had a lot of people last week say, just to let you know, we'll be in on Thursday and, you know, we're not vaccinated and, you know, you, you can't stop us because this is a human rights issue and all this other stuff. I mean, bottom line is, is that we're only doing what what where the government has told us, uh, uh, you know, we have to follow the rules. And this is what we're doing. And it, it, whether you like it or not, the fact is, is that don't put it put blame onto the, the, the staff or the, or the establishment for following the rules, because if we don't follow the rules, we, we potentially get, get shut down and staff lose their jobs and things like that. I mean, that's not fair. It's not fair on anybody. I mean, again, regardless of whether this is right or wrong, this is the, this is the new rules. We have to follow the rules. And that's that. And if people you know, want to argue with that, I mean, that's, that's on them. That's well, you know, where they have to go to the legislation. That's when they can go and vote and do whatever. But it's not fair on the businesses. I mean, we're, we're just out there to make people happy and guests happy and people like I just, I, I find it infuriating, to be honest with you. <laughs> yeah, no, I, I completely understand that for sure. Owen, oh, we'll leave it there. But once again, thank you so much for coming on the show to talk yeah, about no this. Problem. I appreciate it. Thanks again. We're going to talk a little bit more now about long-term care facilities in the province. And with the proof of vaccination, that policy starting to now be in place, what does that mean for facilities? Are there going to be staff shortages if employees at long-term care centres do not get vaccinated and instead leave those positions? Well, joining me now to talk a little bit more about that and how things are looking in long-term care is Terry Lake, the CEO of the BC Care Providers Association. Thanks so much for coming on the program. Thanks for having me, Jill. Uh, what are your thoughts then, the fact that we are now at the time, the date where one dose is going to be needed or there's going to need to be proof of that, uh, two doses by October, uh, as far as staffing and what things are looking like in long-term care? Well, we are very concerned. I mean, we are uh, tremendous supporters of a mandatory vaccination policy for long-term care. And I think most British Columbians agree that it just makes sense when you're caring for the most vulnerable uh, to COVID that that, uh, those caring for them be vaccinated. Today was going to be the first day where you either have to show uh, that you were vaccinated, fully vaccinated, or have a rapid test done before each uh, shift. Now, because they have had some issues around the the portal to upload information about vaccination and personal health numbers. They've delayed that till Thursday. So whereas we thought we would face the situation today where some people may choose to leave their jobs, uh, we've got a few days of uh, reprieve before we see if that happens. So what, what we've said is that, and um, part of me is really hoping that uh, uh, Adrian Dix will say this this afternoon, that new hires into law into acute care must be fully vaccinated, and that would stem any movement from long-term care over to acute care. So uh, we're, we're kind of keeping our fingers crossed for today's uh, announcement from the health minister and Dr. Henry, uh, hoping that it will uh, uh, stem uh, you know, a, a particular problem that we're worried about for staffing. And there's is some anticipation. I know there's been some talk that that could very well be the announcement this afternoon. So you're right. We'll wait and we'll learn more about that at 3 p.m. Would that have a big impact, do you think? Because I think one of the other questions is, are people in a position where if you work in long-term care and for whatever reason you're not going to get the vaccine, are people are many people in the position where they can just walk away from their jobs? 
Well, it would, yes. I mean, in some cases, if there's an uneven policy, because healthcare aides, uh, licensed practical nurses, registered nurses, you know, in most communities could to, could leave their job in long-term care and walk across to the hospital and, and start a job tomorrow because the, the, the staffing needs are great in both uh, sectors. So if, um, if we can close that potential loophole, that will make a big difference. For others, um, you know, whether you're a kitchen worker, for instance, in long-term care, quitting your job means you've got to go find another job. And we know that, you know, the market is, is pretty tough uh, for, um, for the hospitality industry to try to attract people. So, uh, you know, the, the potential of getting another job in many communities is pretty good. Uh, but as I've said to our operators, we need to have one-on-one conversations with employees that are considering this because more and more workplaces are going to a mandatory uh, vaccination policy, particularly for new employees. So people who think they can leave their job and just get another one may find a nasty surprise uh, if they were to do that because, you know, they may not have that opportunity because of these policies being put into place by so many uh, employers. Right, which makes sense. Is there also a concern, too, when we're talking about long-term care? It is more so than a short hospital stay or or even when you go to an acute care centre. Obviously, you're treated by wonderful people and, and you, you have a relationship with them, but a long-term care relationship is much different because it's people that you see every day and you're techni- generally speaking in a long-term care, hence the name long-term care, for a much longer amount of time. Would there be concern that if there's suddenly is all this moving around that's going to be very disruptive. Of course. Um, And this is what's so surprising about the degree of hesitancy, vaccine hesitancy, that we see um, in some long-term care homes. Uh, You know, people working uh, with residents in care are passionate, they're dedicated, they form relationships. So it's very surprising and speaks, I guess, to the uncertainty that some people have uh, that they would uh, have any hesitation about taking a vaccine because they, uh, in normal circumstances, do so much to protect the residents for whom they care. So what we need to do as as uh, operators is make sure that uh, anyone concerned about the vaccine has all the available information about the safety and the efficacy of the vaccine. Uh, SafeCare BC, which is the health and safety organization for contracted providers of care are going to do an educational program funded by the federal government to reach out to every operator and provide the expertise uh, through webinars, uh, through, um, you know, phone lines, so that people can have their questions answered on a one-to-one basis. Right. And and like you mentioned, too, there certainly have been hints from Dr. Bonnie Henry, from the health minister, that more information about mandatory vaccination for people in healthcare settings is coming. So it is quite likely we'll learn more about that this afternoon. Are you concerned at all, though, like you said off the top, that there's been this delay when it comes to rapid testing and bringing that in? Well, I mean, it's no surprise that we've been huge advocates of rapid testing for a long time. And you know, I can't help but feel that if we had employed rapid testing from January uh, on, you know, on a widespread basis, that we would have avoided uh, a number of different outbreaks. We're seeing outbreaks now, uh, even with the vaccine uh, program that made such a big difference. But we are, I think, seeing a waning of immunity to the vaccine. And without, you know, having a, a rapid testing program in place, then we run the potential of having breakthrough infections seed 
outbreaks. And we went from about 40 or 43 uh, outbreaks at one time down to zero, and now we're back over 20. So you can see that something is going on, uh, whether that's a waning of immunity or just the rise in uh, community prevalence of the virus. It's hard to say, but I, I think that a third dose uh, booster dose for those in care is something that I know the government is considering. Uh, but, um, you know, I would say the evidence is pretty compelling that we should start that right away. Is it a case, though, also of people in long-term care have comorbidities in many cases, there are other issues going on, and, and that we are going to continue seeing breakthrough cases, uh, cases where we do have 100% vaccination in some cases, the virus is still going to be uh, an issue? Yes, of course, that's why we think a third dose is necessary, because um, as you age, your your immunological uh, defense mechanisms uh, tend not to be as robust. And so you may not respond to a vaccine as well as uh, a younger person, and your immunity may not last as long as a younger person. This is why we use a high-dose flu vaccine for elders in care, whereas the, the general public, the normal flu vaccine, so, you know, I think there's lots of reasons uh, to think that a third booster will be necessary. But, of course, that same argument means that we should absolutely be having a mandatory vaccine uh, program for uh, those who work in long-term care. And, again, you know, we were calling for that for, for a long time. Uh, now that it's being implemented, I hope we will see, um, you know, more defense uh, around long-term care homes and that we'll see these outbreaks uh, subside. But I think we need to probably take a multi-pronged approach of a third booster along with the mandatory vaccination for workers. Do you know in the care homes or the facilities that, that you're involved with what the percentages are or, or the general, the average percentage of workers that are fully vaccinated? We don't have that information because it can only be provided on a voluntary basis at the moment. This provincial health uh, officer order uh, says that we now have to collect that information and people have to give that information. And they've set up this portal, uh, which operators uh, have to fill out a, a spreadsheet with everyone's first, last name, their date of birth, their personal health number, and then that will track their vaccine status. But it takes quite a bit to set up a system like this, and it's been very finicky, uh, lots of glitches. And, you know, the ministry has worked closely with operators to try to work some of those glitches out. I'm not sure why we couldn't have just used the same system as the vaccine uh, card that the general public is using. Um, but there may be reasons why that wasn't possible. But it seems it would have been much simpler to have one system rather than operators spending literally days and days and days trying to upload information into this portal, which has uh, caused uh, quite a few problems. All right. Well, we will touch base with you again soon, I am sure. But Terry Lake, thank you so much for your time today. Appreciate it. Thank you, Jill. Thanks for being with us. Well, my next guest is looking for some good Samaritans after taking a very frightening tumble on a bike last Sunday. Joining me to talk more about what happened is Jeff Lieberman, who is a writer and a director and also an avid cyclist. Jeff, thank you so much for being with us. Hey, Jill. Thanks for having me. Uh, how are you doing? Uh, I'm better than I was a week ago. Um, I've got a broken nose and a broken finger and lots of scrapes and scratches and a mild concussion, but uh, I'm healing and uh, I got good health care, so I'm appreciative and feeling lucky. 
That that is good. Uh, I think I may have mistakenly said this was a an, a crash with a car earlier. I think I made that assumption, but that's not what happened. Can you tell us where you were and what happened to cause you to take this tumble? Yeah, I was um, basically riding along Eighth uh, Avenue between Camby and Oak, and uh, realized I should have really been on Seventh, which is the designated bike street. Uh, so I turned on Laurel and. Uh, if anyone has been there, they can kind of picture that it's a fairly steep hill. And um, I've been riding a family member's old bike since I'm visiting. And uh, my memory is a little bit hazy in this uh, after that, but uh, I must have braked. And uh, looking at the bike now, it seems that the front brake cable snapped and then jammed the front tire. The cable actually went into the tire. Uh, and then threw me off the bike just because of the hill and the forward motion. Um, and I landed basically on uh, what seems like my face or my head uh, and blacked out from that point forward. Wow, that's uh, that's frightening. And anybody that knows that area of Laurel Street, uh, the Eighth Avenue on the on the Fairview slopes, that's a that's a steep hill to be to be going down and to be going falling off your bike on. Yeah, and it's such a freak thing to have happened in terms of the bike cable snapping. I've never heard of that happening before, and uh, I understand that there's, you know, maybe newer bikes have guards to prevent the cable from actually uh, having contact with the wheel, um, but not with this bike. And there was little that one could do to, to prevent the fall once it happened. Uh, I'm I'm making the jump too that you must have been wearing a helmet. To, I mean, your injuries are serious, but it sounds like it would have been much much worse. Yeah, I think the helmet basically saved my life. So I'm I always ride with a helmet. I didn't always. Uh, there were many years that I did not, but for the last ten fifteen years, I've been wearing a helmet, and I I think that's the one lesson from this story is that a helmet does make a big difference in any type of fall. Yeah. Uh, you, so you mentioned that you you fell this way, you fell on, on your head, and you kind of blacked out. So at what point do you remember coming to? Uh, I remember that someone came up to me and told me that I had a bike accident. And I'm not sure if that person helped me to the side of the road or in a blacked out state I had crawled over to. I'm not sure really what's possible. Uh, but I do remember sitting on the curb and um, sort of uh, someone, actually three people, kind of standing around and helping me and um, calling an ambulance on my behalf and helping me get a phone out of the bag that was on my uh, bike so I could call a family member to tell them what was happening. Um, and and those three people are, you know, I I think really responsible for saving my life too. Because goodness knows if I was laying in the street, um, a car could have hit me. Or, um, you know, I think the time where you're blacked out, uh, it's important not to be in that state for too long, because um, worse things could have happened. So they were really vital in in my recovery too. Right. And and you then, you were able to call, you mentioned you were here visiting family, so you were able to call one of your family members here? Yeah, I called my sister, uh, who's an ER nurse at VGH, 
and um, wasn't working that day, but I had just come from her house. Uh, so she was close by, and I was sort of able to alert her to to come help as well and to contact the rest of my family. And so she, she was there within about 20 minutes or so. And so the three people then that, that stopped, I, and I know you'd like to to figure out who they are. Did they? It sounds like they stayed with you. They they certainly helped you and stayed with you. And did, then did they just kind of disappear? Or do you know? Do, do you know anything about who who they were? Um, that's sort of the mysterious part that's that's bothering me in a way is that um, they they must have spent at least half an hour to forty five minutes with me, and um, I was in and out of consciousness the whole time. I believe, or at least my memory goes in and out. I I don't have a clear picture of everything that happened within that period. Um, my memory becomes much better uh, after I arrived at the hospital, so I don't even really remember the ambulance ride. Um, and I it never I never had the the uh, capacity to thank them or to get their information. Uh, and my sister, who arrived, was sort of trying to figure out why an ambulance hadn't arrived yet and what to do with the bike and to call my parents. So she wasn't able to get their information either. Um, So we all just kind of left and didn't really get a chance to properly thank them. So would you like then, if people are listening to this, if somebody, well, if by chance uh, one of the three people or or any of the three people are listening or somebody who maybe witnessed this or was talking to their friend and realizes now it was their friend who was one of the people who helped you, uh, would you like to get in in touch with them or what would you like to do? Yeah, I'd I'd really like to thank them and just um, make sure they know that uh, how appreciative I am for everything they did for me and that they're you know, uh, activity was not forsaken or, um, and how important it is to to help people. I feel like we live in a very fractured time and uh, people are reluctant to, you know, get too involved in strangers, especially when there's blood and drama and time commitment. Um, So I just really want uh, to express my my gratitude to them and, and honor them for their, for their heroism. Do you have any idea as far as descriptions? Do you remember at all what they look like uh, if we're dealing uh, with with men or women or anything that you can kind of help people at all with a description? Sure. Yeah, there were two women and one man. Um, For some reason, I believe that he was a firefighter uh, off duty. And um, I, I kind of suspect that they were in somewhere in their 30s. That sort of like feels right. Um, but I could be mistaken. Um, and that's, that's about it. Um, I posted a sign, um, at 7th and Laurel describing the incident, hoping that they maybe lived in the neighborhood and would see the sign. Um, but, and I've taken to social media and, uh, and hope and tried to spread the word there too. But we haven't had any luck so far. Hmm. Did you get the sense, or you might not know this, that they were three people that were together, or they were three separate people who just happened upon this scene at the same time? Yeah, that's a good question. I'm not sure. Uh, maybe two and one or something like that. Um, they did bring me paper towel, so I assumed that they were maybe in a car or in a house nearby but I didn't get the strong sense of whether they were together or not. Right. Uh, and uh, you mentioned, too, you're here visiting. Where are you visiting from? 
Uh, I live in New York. I, I grew up in Vancouver, and uh, I've been waiting a long time to come back to British Columbia to visit and uh, waited until the uh, mandatory two-week quarantine was lifted. So I came back in about mid-July, and uh, it's just been such a beautiful summer here that I've stayed so I could spend more time with my family and friends here. Oh, very, very nice. Well, then, yeah. the, from Vancouver, then you're. It's so so nice to see people, complete strangers, helping people out and doing this. And nice that you do want to reach out to them and say thank you for them for doing this. Uh, is there a way if people are hearing this again and maybe want are the people or have information? Is there a way for people to reach you? Uh, yes, um, I do have a website uh, for my company. It's uh, reemergingfilms.com. And that's reemerging with a hyphen, uh, re-emergingfilms.com. And they can, <clears throat> they can find uh, an email link there to, to, reach, to reach me. I think that would probably be the easiest. All right. Well, glad to hear that you are on the mend and, and getting better and are going to be okay. And I hope that somebody hears this and they're able to reach out to you and you are able to find the three people to say thank you. Jeff, thanks so much for talking with us today about this. I appreciate your time so much. Thank you as well. Thanks for giving it some time.